Well, good morning, everyone. Sometimes I get into good conversations and I don't manage to get back in the room. So if you saw me sneak out on stage, that's why, because um, I was talking. I have no other excuse. But it was a good, it was a good talk. Actually, it's really, it's really neat. And let me just say something about this. So um, one of the neat things about being a pastor is you get to talk to all kinds of different people. And so some of you are here who have been coming regularly and you're not even sure if you believe any of the stuff that we just sang. And I'm so glad you're here. It's just awesome that you're willing to, uh, to sit through that and be here with us and explore what this whole faith thing looks like in Jesus. So it's just great to have people here who are wrestling with that. And I want you to know that, that you're not alone. There are others like you here as well that are wrestling with that. And uh, if you want to come up and talk to me after the service, just like after the first service, please feel free to do that. I'd love to talk with you. The last few weeks for us um, have been a little challenging, a little heavy because we've been talking about the abuse and persecution and trials and arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. It's heavy stuff. It's not exactly light sermon material. And so I'm excited about today because today everything is different. Everything is passing from darkness to light, from death to life. All of the stuff about the crucifixion, everything Jesus went through, it's necessary. It's good that we have that. It's great that God gives that to us um, so that we know and understand what he went through. In fact, that's why we do communion, to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But it's equally important to remember that three days later, he rose from the dead. And that is what we get to talk about today. The resurrection, this amazing thing that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, came back to life after having been dead. And the study that we're in right now in the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives us barely any information about this at all. So it's a little challenging when we come to this in Mark because Mark doesn't actually give us much. It's a very unsatisfying way to end the book. He ends it on kind of a a low note, and you don't have to just take my word for that. About the end of the second century or early third century, we're not entirely sure, sometime in there, scribes started adding extra information to the end of the book of Mark because they wanted to bring some resolution to it. They wanted it to end on a higher note. I remember as a kid watching a movie with my grandparents And it was a movie that left a lot of questions unanswered at the end. I don't even remember what the movie was. But I was so unsettled by the fact that there were so many questions left unanswered at the end of this movie. And it was a a family movie, but it was a a cliffhanger. And it was one where you just didn't know what happened at the end of it to all the different characters. And it, it disturbed me for weeks. Well, decades if you count this week thinking about it. But a long time. And I remember talking to my grandparents and asking them, you know, what happened to these people? And what did they go on to do? And what about this problem and this situation? What did they do about this? And there were so many things that were left unanswered and they didn't have any answers for me. And I'm sure it was very frustrating for them to hear all of those questions and not be able to answer this little boy's questions about this movie. And Mark's gospel is kind of like that. It ends as a cliffhanger that leaves a lot of questions unanswered. So it's really important for us As we go into this last message in our study on the gospel of Mark, I think this is sermon number 42. Now, I haven't done all of those. Uh, We've had other people step in there as well. But as we go into this last message, it's really important to understand 
what is Mark's purpose in writing this? Because Mark does not write this to provide a detailed historical record like Luke does. What Mark wrote is historical and it's true, but his purpose was not to give this detailed historical account. His purpose was to give a persuasive testimony. His purpose was to challenge his readers to question for themselves and wrestle with this question of who is Jesus really? Who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? And so he leaves off his book that way. But Mark gives us very little about the resurrection. In fact, he does not give us anything about a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. And I love the fact that we get to talk about the resurrection as part of a sermon series that's not actually on Easter. Not that I don't love Easter and talking about it on Easter, but... It's such a big thing, we should be talking about it at other times. And so we get to do kind of a deep dive into the resurrection today. Usually when we're preaching about the resurrection, we're taking one of the gospels and we're giving that perspective on it. But today we're gonna do something very, very different. We are gonna pull from all four gospels and Acts and 1 Corinthians to pull together the testimonies that we have about the resurrection and interweave them into one continuous narrative. Now, as a part of that, I just want to warn you that probably 80% of my talk today will be reading scripture. And if that bothers you, then then you can come let me know that you don't like us reading scripture in church. Hopefully that won't (laughs) be too big of an issue. But what we're actually going to do is we're going to pull together all these different narratives into one cohesive narrative so that we can see what all happened on that amazing day 2,000 years ago on a Sunday, sun up to sundown, what all transpired that we know from all these different sources and pull them all together so that hopefully we leave here with a better understanding of the wonder and the awe and the amazement that Jesus' followers had in going through this and experiencing this together. So let's just start by talking to God and asking him to lead us through this process. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I pray that you would guide our talk today. I pray that you'd speak to us through the testimony of all of these men and women who saw you and and shared that information with other people and eventually it was written down so that we could know about it, all these different sources, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to be captured today by the wonder and the awe and the amazement of of everything that your followers experienced when they saw you after you rose from the dead. And I pray that it would make a difference in our lives. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, here's something you need to know about Mark chapter 16. Only the first eight verses of that chapter, which is our section for today, only the first eight verses are original to Mark. The second half was added later. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Hold on a minute. Are you telling me there is something in my Bible that wasn't original and doesn't belong there? Let me put it this way. There are a lot of things in our Bibles that are not original to the original manuscripts. Let me give you some examples. The chapter headings were not original. The verse divisions were not original. Most of the section headings were not original. If you have cross-references in your Bible or footnotes or commentary notes, those commentary notes were not original to the original text. 
And the best way to think of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, is as an ancient commentary note. So virtually all of our Bibles, if you have a good translation with good scholarship behind it, it's going to have a note in there after verse 8 that says, by the way, the next several verses were added later. Early manuscripts do not have that part of the gospel of Mark. Now, why would they do that? Well, you're going to see in a minute as we walk through this together, how challenging the ending of the book of Mark is if it ends at verse 8. It is a cliffhanger. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered. So sometime in the late 2nd century or early 3rd century, scribes started adding other endings onto the book of Mark as summary endings. They used the other gospels and other testimonies as their source material, and they added these summaries. In fact, if you have a New Living Translation Bible, which is what I tend to preach out of, and I love the scholarship behind that Bible in particular, it actually gives you two of those endings, the two most popular ones, but there were others. And so scribes added these endings almost as a commentary note to some of the manuscripts they were copying in the late 200s, early 300s and on. And those became fairly commonplace and included. We saw that a week ago with another verse that kind of got added in in the same way that wasn't in the original, the oldest manuscripts that we have. When I was preparing for this message, you have to know that I had a whole section dedicated toward explaining why Mark might have ended at verse 8. And then I had a whole passage explaining why there were these extra endings and how they came about and how they got added. And then I had a whole big section explaining why we can trust the historical reliability of the Bible and how we can know, even because of some things like this, just how accurate the information we have on the Bible is. But the more I studied the narratives of the resurrection and pulled those together, the more I realized that that had to take center stage today. We have more than enough to talk about just with the resurrection. So here's what I want to offer to you. For those of you that are sitting there thinking, I really want to know more about the the textual aspects of this. I really want to know more about this ending in verse 8 thing and these other endings and and the historical reliability of the Bible. I want to offer that you email me after this and I will more than happily share the many, many pages of research that I've looked into this week that we simply won't have time for today. But I just think that the resurrection of Jesus and what happened on that day is what we need to be talking about this morning. So I just want you to know that as we go into this. Because I wonder how many of us really understand what all happened that day on Sunday. See, the four gospel authors write from different perspectives. And um, I don't think I've ever really heard them all pulled together in a cohesive narrative. And so usually when we're preaching on it, we're getting Matthew's perspective or Luke's perspective or John's perspective. But, and we might get a little cross information there, but pulling them all together and just understanding, walking through what all happened that day, that I think is incredibly valuable for us to understand what Jesus did the day that he came back to life here. Now, Mark only gives us eight verses. Matthew gives us 20 verses. That's a little better. Luke has 53, which is helpful, and John has 56. And then you have some in the book of Acts and some in 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote, that all sort of give us a picture, a complete picture of what the resurrection looked like. And what I want you to think about this morning is what was it like to be there? Can we just try to step into a time machine for a little bit? And go back and try to see this through the eyes of Peter and John and Matthew and Luke 
and Mary Magdalene and the two guys that were heading to Emmaus and all the other followers that were experiencing this on that day, that incredible day of the resurrection. We're going to start on Friday evening. And as we do this, I want to let you know we are going to be all over the New Testament. So to make this easy on you, if you want to follow along on your own, all of the verses we're going to cover are in sequence, in chronological order, on the YouVersion Bible app, as well as on this link, efree.org Bible. So if you want to pull that up and go there and follow along, or later in the week, if you want to remember this or study this on your own, on that webpage or the YouVersion app, there's even a place for you to take notes on each of those passages, and you can go there on the web and you can print that out if you want to or save that or whatever you want to do with it. That way you can follow along with us together. So it's Friday evening. The disciples are distraught. Their leader, their friend, the Messiah had been crucified. They scattered all over the place, locking themselves in homes and in different areas. Some of them probably fled all the way back over the Mount of Olives to Bethany, afraid that they would be next. As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. And now we're going to jump from Matthew to John. That's how this is going to work today, to fill in all of these details. With him, with Joseph, came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. And then back to Matthew. He placed it in his own new tomb. Just as Joseph placed Jesus' body in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. These stones were prepared in advance because you never knew when you were going to need the tomb. And so this stone was prepared and it was in something of a channel that was sloped so you could roll it up and out of the way with several people and then block it in place. And when it came time to put a body in there with any kind of special valuables or jewelry that they treasured or whatever it was, you could put the body in there with all the ointment and spices and all these expensive things and you could pull away the release and the stone was easily rolled into place but very hard to move out of the way so that grave robbers could not come in and take whatever items were in there. And so this stone was there and Jesus' body was taken away. The women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. But they had not had a chance to pay their respects to Jesus yet, like Joseph and Nicodemus did, but they saw where it was placed. So they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they rested as required by law. The Sabbath began sundown Friday and ended sundown Saturday. And so they didn't have enough time to get everything ready. And so they had to rest and wait. Saturday morning. Only Matthew tells us what the religious leaders did on the Sabbath. He says the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. See, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. This was no secret. 
So they said, we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, take guards and secure it as best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. Now these were probably Roman guards because later on these guards are fearful of Pilate. And so they probably worked for him. They were probably Roman guards, not temple guards. Later that day, Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who was probably Jesus' aunt, or maybe the mother of some of the other disciples, we're not sure, but she was a follower of Jesus that came down from Galilee with him. They went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. These are in addition to what they had already prepared the night before and to what Joseph and Nicodemus had brought those 75 pounds of ointment to bury with Jesus. They were going to go out and purchase more Saturday evening. Why? Because they so loved and cared for and honored and respected Jesus. But also because they thought he was going to stay dead. They did not believe he was going to rise again. They thought, that's it. It's done. It's over. So we're going to go ahead and go through our burial customs and we're going to put, put everything in there with him and we're just going to show him all the honor and respect we could. Like the, the jar of expensive perfume that was poured out on Jesus not long before this. They got all kinds of spices and ointment to go through their burial customs and show incredible respect and honor to him. But nothing could prepare them for what they would experience the next day. It's Sunday, early Sunday morning. Before the sun came up, the pace of the narrative here gets really, really quick. It's moving fast. If you've ever seen the TV series 24, you know what I'm talking about where all of a sudden there's a thing happening over here and there's something happening over here at the same time. There's something happening over here at the same time. And that's exactly what the resurrection accounts feel like on Sunday morning because it's just rapid pace all over the place. Only Jesus could do something Jack Bauer couldn't. Jesus could just appear here and disappear and then appear over here and then disappear. And Jack Bauer wishes he had that kind of ability because he had to go through some pretty terrible stuff because he couldn't just disappear. Jesus moves around all over the place on Sunday and the pace of this thing is really, really fast, which is why when you read the different gospel authors, you're getting their perspective on what happened and it's just a glimpse. It's just a taste of what actually went on that day. I wanna show you some of that as we go through this. Here's what happens. Luke 24, very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. This is Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, the mother of James. This is Salome, but it's also Joanna. Uh, There are several other women from Galilee who came down with Jesus who are with him as well. So there's a large group of women. And then we learn from Mark that on the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? So evidently it was heavy enough that they didn't think with a large group of women that they could actually push this thing out of the way or it was something that they, they wouldn't want to be doing. But before they got there, Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, 
and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. And the guards then ran away to tell the religious leaders what they had experienced. So that as the women were approaching the tomb, they were still wondering, how are we going to roll away the stone? And they had no idea the extra guards had even been placed there. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? We're going to jump from Luke over to Mark because Mark gives us a little more of what the angel said. Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. I think it's very interesting that he specifically points out Peter. Make sure you tell Peter, Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. And this is how Mark's gospel ends. The original Mark's gospel ends. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. What a glorious ending, right? It kind of leaves us on an abysmal note. That's why we're pulling in all these other resurrection narratives today to help fill in the pieces and understand what all really happened. And there are lots of good reasons for why Mark ended it there. I'm not going to take the time this morning to go into those. But this is where his gospel actually ends. The angels told the women that Jesus had risen from the dead, but there were no resurrection appearances There was no reconciliation at this point between Jesus and Peter. No teachings of Jesus after he came back from the dead. So this is why we're now going to be including all the different narratives from the other places, the same sources that those other summary endings that are in some of the more newer manuscripts, still ancient but newer manuscripts, the same sources they would have pulled from. What seems to happen at this point is that Mary Magdalene must leave this group of women to go find Peter. Remember, Peter was specifically mentioned. Make sure you go tell Peter. I think that was a very gracious thing to do because Peter is the one who had just denied Jesus three times after promising upwards and down that he wouldn't. And so they say, make sure you go tell Peter. And so it seems that Mary Magdalene must split off of this group alone to go find Peter. Peter and the other women continued to look for the other disciples or go to where the other disciples were. And so Mary Magdalene, well, she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That is John. Now John, perhaps out of humility, doesn't refer to himself by his own name. On the other hand, he's the only guy that he says Jesus loved. So I'm not really sure how to take that. I'm not going to mention my name, but Jesus loved me. Maybe a little more than the other guys. Whatever John means by that, Peter and John are found by Mary Magdalene. She was probably looking for Peter and John happened to be with him. She said, and this is important, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. She still thinks that the body was stolen. She doesn't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter and the other disciple, John, started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
he stooped and looked in because the doorways were, were low. You had to stoop down to look into them. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Now, if someone wanted to steal the body, I don't think they would take the time to unwrap all of the linens and leave them lying there. If someone wanted to take the body, they'd probably just take the whole thing and go. So right away, there's evidence here that something else is happening. And and John is wondering, what's going on here? And then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. Well, the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Let me ask you, what body snatcher would take the time to do that? To take off the fabric that was around the head and the linen wrappings and to fold things up and lay them neatly there before they steal the body. Doesn't make any sense. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. See, at this point, John is remembering all that Jesus was teaching and, and what the Old Testament had to say about the Messiah and all of that's coming back to him and now he's starting to understand it's true. Jesus really did rise from the dead and so John believes. Then they went home. Peter's not quite there yet, by the way. He doesn't know what to think. And so Luke tells us that Peter went home again wondering what had happened. But Mary Magdalene stayed. Remember, she was there with Peter and John. The three of them went to the tomb together. Mary Magdalene stayed there and she waited just outside as these two men went in and checked it out. She had been there once before. That's how she knew to go get them and tell them that the body is missing. But she waited outside confused and conflicted. John believed. Peter wasn't so sure. Mary at this point still thinks that someone has stolen the body, which is a disgraceful and horrifying thought. And so Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Now, there's no introduction here because Mary has already seen these angels when she came with the other women earlier in the day. But this is John's first instance of telling us about them, so he's explaining them uh, in more detail. But there's no introduction, there's no fear, there's there's no terror here, there's just a question from the angels. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She still didn't believe. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. I think probably the reason she didn't recognize him was because of all the tears. Probably hair and tears all over her face crying because of this and and she sees someone kind of blurry out there and she doesn't know who it is. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbioni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers or disciples and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. At some point in this timeline, 
the other women also get to see Jesus. While they were looking for the other disciples, Mary Magdalene must have left them to go find Peter because she did not see Jesus with them. She first sees him at the tomb when she got John and Peter. But these other women we know also got to see Jesus. And here's how that happened. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were frightened. Remember what Mark said, how they were bewildered and frightened and scared and they said nothing to anyone. They were speechless. But that only lasted for a certain period of time. Even though that's where Mark's gospel ends off, they get to a point where they're filled with great joy. After Mary Magdalene leaves and she goes to find Peter, the rest of them start to talk and they're, they're wondering about all of this and they're thinking, could it possibly be true? And their fear turns to a hopeful joy. It might actually be true. Jesus could really be alive. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers or disciples to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. The religious leaders, upon hearing about the miracle that was shared by the soldiers, the angel that came, that rolled away the stone, that shook the earth, that shone like lightning, and they were all fearful and afraid, and they fainted, and then they ran away. Well, the religious leaders heard all of that, and they said, we don't want you to tell that to anybody. So they came up with a lie. They said, tell people and especially Pilate, tell them that the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole his body. And they said, here's some money to bribe you to do this. And if you get in trouble with the governor, Pilate, we'll back you up. We got your back. And that's why we think these were probably Roman guards, not Roman soldiers, not temple guards, because they were fearful of what Pilate might think. It doesn't really seem like a great plan to me, though. So... You're telling me that the disciples came and took Jesus' body. I thought you were there to guard the tomb. How did that happen? Well, it was nighttime and we were sleeping. Okay, first of all, you're supposed to be on guard, not sleeping. Secondly, then how did you know it was the disciples that came and took it? I don't know. It's not a really great plan, is it? But it does help us to weigh out the alternative theories about the resurrection. See, virtually no scholar, Christian or otherwise, disagrees with the fact that there was a man named Jesus who did die and whose followers did claim that he rose from the dead. That's pretty well settled, even in the secular literature. His followers claimed he rose from the dead. The question is, why would they claim that? And and what plausible alternative explanations would there be? And if there's any truth to these historical accounts that we have that that go back a long, long ways, some of them to early second century. And there's just a fragment of Mark found from back around 125 or so AD. It's amazing the historical reliability of this text. How is it that any of these alternatives even make sense. I mean, the best Jesus' enemies could come up with is that the disciples somehow snuck past these trained Roman soldiers, moved a giant stone without making a sound, and then ran, oh, took the time to unwrap the linens and fold the fabric, and then ran away with the body of Jesus, and the soldiers woke up just in time to see who it was, but not in time to catch the men who were carrying the body. 
It's not a very plausible explanation. So even the fact that the religious leaders demanded extra guards at the tomb is evidence of the reality of the resurrection. Jesus' enemies became witnesses and added more witnesses. And it's worth considering the hearts of these religious leaders as they heard this story of this supernatural event that occurred with an angel in the stone and all of that. And their response to this was not to say, wow, we have sinned. Here's a bunch of trained soldiers who are not believers in Jesus Uh, almost certainly not even Jewish people. These are just Roman soldiers who are coming back and telling us they have no reason to lie about this. And what do they say? We'll come up with a lie for you. It shows the hardness of their hearts that they would insist on lying instead of recognizing what God was doing. So the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews and they still tell it today. Matthew was written about 50 or 60 AD. So this is around 20, 30 years after these events took place. And so three decades later, that story was still being told by people of, well, the disciples must have come in the middle of the night and stolen the body. But we know from the details of the account that doesn't make sense. There's no way that could have happened. That same day, Two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. Now, I don't think that they were walking and all of a sudden Jesus plopped in next to them and just appeared. I think we'd have a little different account in the text if that happened. I think he probably appeared like 10 feet behind him. And suddenly he was there, but they didn't know that he had suddenly appeared. And so he walked, came up and walked along. That's just my personal theory. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. And they continued to tell Jesus about Jesus. Describing the things that he did, what an amazing person he was. They told him about this man they once knew and how the religious leaders had had him crucified. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see. Now you can see this narrative taking place here. The group of women that went out, they saw the angels. And then how did those men go see? That was Peter and John who Mary Magdalene went to go get and see. Some of our men ran out to see and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. And then Jesus corrected these two men. He rebuked them for not believing what the scriptures had said about the Messiah. And he said, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And wouldn't you have loved to be a part of that Bible lesson? 
to have Jesus explaining to you from the Old Testament scriptures, here's all the stuff that points to me. Probably a lot of stuff that we, we don't even have a clue. We don't even understand all of the things, all of the connections. I really think that once we get to heaven, we're gonna get that Bible lesson. And we're gonna see what's been happening behind the scenes. It makes me think of Pixar movies. Let me explain. Have you seen Pixar movies? Do you know what they do in their movies? How you have, very good. I love Pixar movies. And do you know that Pixar always works in these extra details into their movies? So like if you're watching a movie from several years ago, it'll have characters in it that they won't use again until many movies later and now it's a main, main character. And so there are all these, they call them Easter eggs. There are all these little things that are hidden in the movies and there's stuff that appeared in this movie over here that then appears in all these other movies over here. And so there's all these cross, cross references and foreshadowing and callbacks and I think that's what history is like to God. If you look back through the Old Testament, there are all of these things that point to Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection, even stuff that meant something really different back then as a foreshadowing aspect. And Jesus and other authors in the New Testament will call back to those things and say, see this, this applies here too. God is this amazing storyteller who is weaving together this incredible narrative. And it's like if you've ever watched a a tapestry or a, a fancy rug being made by hand or something like that. And if you look at the backside of that thing, it's just a jumbled mess. It doesn't really look very good. And then when it's all finished and you turn the thing around, it's like, oh, wow, that's beautiful. That's how I think about what God is doing in our world today. Even what God's doing in your life. Because for some of you, your life is a jumbled mess right now. And I think that when everything's said and done, we're going to be able to flip that thing around and go, oh, that's the tapestry God was weaving. And so throughout history, God has been working these things in, these, the foreshadowing, the callbacks, the cross-references. God is this amazing storyteller weaving these things through. And here Jesus explains that to them and gives them all that inside detail. I think one day we will get that too. The two men heading to Emmaus then had dinner with Jesus that evening. And eventually he revealed his true identity to them. And as soon as he did, he disappeared and he was gone. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11. It's important to know that the 11 is a title, just like the 12. The 12 apostles were frequently just referred to in the, in the scriptures as the 12, even when not all 12 of them were there. It's just a collective title for them. And so here they found the 11, but Thomas was not there. So the 11 were not all there. It was just the new title that they were using for that group. They found the 11 minus Thomas disciples and the others who gathered with them who said the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Now this is amazing because at some point already this day, Jesus has appeared privately to Peter. We have no recollection of that anywhere else but now we know Peter who was in the room with them he's there and 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 they these men who are coming to see the other disciples the other disciples say Jesus has appeared to Peter and they say yeah us too so the two men from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking bread now just try to put yourself into the shoes of the other disciples in that room who had not seen Jesus yet Peter saw him. Mary Magdalene saw him. 
The women who are traveling back from the tomb saw him. The two on the road to Emmaus saw him. All of these reports are coming in of Jesus over here, Jesus over there, Jesus over there. And they're thinking to themselves, can this be true? Could it really be possible? I don't know what to think of all of this. Is Jesus really alive? And then, just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Thomas was not with them that day. And when Thomas found out about this, he said, I want to see the wounds too. I want to see the wounds in his hands and his side, just like you got to see the wounds in his hands and his side. In fact, I won't believe until I see that. One week later, also on a Sunday, Thomas got his wish. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And then Jesus left again. We don't know if he went out the door or if he just disappeared. But at this point, the incredible events of Sunday had finally come to a close. If Friday was the most discouraging day in human history, Sunday was the most glorious Friday was filled with sin and death and judgment and Sunday was filled with wonder and awe and joy. Just think about what these people saw and experienced. Here's what happened next. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. In Galilee, Peter led a group of them out onto the Sea of Galilee. They were out there to catch fish They tried all night, caught nothing. Jesus had not shown up yet. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the shore about 100 yards away. They couldn't see who he was, but he calls out to them. And he says, cast your nets on the other side. They didn't know who this guy was, but they figured, we haven't caught anything all night. What do we have to lose? So they threw their net on the other side. And when they tried to pull it back in, it was so full of fish. There was something like over 150 huge fish in there that they couldn't pull it back into the boat. But the net didn't break. So they had to drag the thing outside of the boat back to the shore. And Jesus took some of the fish that they caught and he cooked it and he served them breakfast. Just pause on that for a minute. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God who had just been crucified and came back to life is sitting on a beach in the sand with a fire that he made cooking a fish over it for these guys. Gives a whole new meaning to Jesus coming not to be served but to serve. He was there to serve them. We need to serve like Jesus. Unbelievable what he did for them. 40 days later, Jesus led them to Bethany. And lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven This is in Luke. We're going to jump over to Acts. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from you from heaven in the same way you saw him go. And then back to Luke. So they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. 
and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. And as amazing as all of that is, all of that resurrection account, everything that's there, as incredible as that is, my favorite part is yet to come. Because at the end of the Gospel of John, here's what John writes. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. What? So you mean everything that we have is just a snapshot? All of the resurrection appearances, all of the teachings of Jesus, all of the miracles of Jesus, everything he did is just a fraction of what he did because we've got this one compiled book and the world could not hold the books that would be written? There is much more to learn about Jesus and what he did when we get to eternity. Paul said that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after his resurrection. And this many of them were still living when Paul was writing. So you could go verify their stories. He also appeared to James at some point before the rest of the apostles. So James got a private appearance too. We don't know anything about that. There's so much more to learn about Jesus. But why is this recorded for us? What difference does this make to us to understand the resurrection? I want to challenge you with three things as we close today. Three things that I think we need to learn from the resurrection. And the first thing is this. We need to believe in it. I'm just going to share with you what the Apostle Paul said about this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life... We are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, the first Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus that allow us to have new life in Christ. And if that is something that you don't understand, if that is something where you have never taken that step of belief, I want to challenge you today Come down and talk to us after the service. Come talk to me or one of our other pastors or the prayer team that will be up here and we want to answer any questions you may have about what it means to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The second thing I want to challenge you with is to rest in the resurrection. Rest in it. What do I mean by that? Trust in it. Trust in the work that Jesus has done. Trust in the, in the work of his resurrection. Trust that your sins are forgiven. Not just yesterday's, but today's and tomorrow's. Trust that the crisis that you're facing right now is not so big that a risen savior cannot walk through that with you. Cannot help you through that. The fact that we serve a risen savior means everything because he is there with God the Father right now representing us to him and opening that pathway for us. So we have a hope that others don't have. We need to rest in that hope. The third thing I want to challenge you with is to live in it. Peter was with Jesus when he said to Thomas, put your, put your hands in my side, put your fingers in the wounds in my hand. 
Peter was there. He saw all of this. And here's what he said about the resurrection sometime later. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. That now is so important. Before it was darkness, but now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. And this is what's so amazing. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Think back to what Jesus told Thomas. You believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who will believe having not seen me. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. You see, because Jesus lives, we can truly live. Jesus said, I have come so that they might have life and have it more abundantly, an abundant life. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, because we have a risen Savior, we can live in a way we could never experience otherwise with inexpressible joy. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can truly be alive in him. Because of the resurrection, we can believe in it, we can rest in it, we can live in it. Let's pray. God, our study in in Mark has been so fruitful and so challenging. And to learn about the incredible events that happened when you rose from the dead, Jesus, it's, it's just overwhelming. To think of what you went through for us and the great lengths that you took to leave so many witnesses for us so that we can know what you did and have testimony after testimony after testimony of that amazing day when you came back to this earth. Now, Lord, I pray that we would believe in it. And if there's anyone here who is struggling with that belief, Lord, I pray that you'd draw them to yourself and draw close to them. I pray that we would rest in it, that we would not allow the things that are thrown at us every day, the distractions to take our eyes off of you, but to keep everything in focus and perspective thanks to the hope that we have through the resurrection. And I pray that we would live in it. Not just the hope of a better life in the future, but the inexpressible joy that we can have now because we have a risen Savior who represents us before God. We have a risen Savior who cares about us, who leads us through difficult times, who rejoices with us when things are good, who comforts us when things are bad. Lord, help us to have that inexpressible joy that is only known from a relationship with the risen Jesus Christ, our Savior. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, have a great week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll see you next Sunday.